we get started with uh, with the message this week, there's something that I, I really I need to address. If you if you were here last Sunday, uh, you heard Brad Talley make in jest uh, a statement. Uh, he he said something to the effect of. Sean Cross is apolitical. Statements like that are are, are reckless and and some might even say gutless. Not me, but some. Some. Um, My family heard on, on the car ride home, Melissa turned to me, her eyes shrink wrapped in tears. Is it true, Sean? <laughs> Did you say you're apolitical? And I said to her, I'm, I'm not sure. I say a lot of things. Uh, can't keep track of the things that I say. Uh, so I had to do what every political-minded person does when they want to know if something is true. I fact-checked it. <laughs> and the statement is indeed False. And so I stand here in front of you today, and I want to tell you that (laughs) I am not apolitical. (laughs) In fact, I am very, very political. In fact, the idea, and and of course this is all a joke, and Brad knows as well as I do, that um, everyone is political. Even to say you're apolitical would be a political statement. Um, but the reality is I'm actually very far from apolitical. I love politics. And, and when I say I love politics, here's what I don't mean. I don't mean that I love two grown men arguing like high school children um, over partisan bickering and, and all of that jazz. Um, I, I don't like um, when friends all of a sudden can't be friends because of differences of political opinion. That's not the politics I like when I say I like politics. When I say I like politics, I actually could say I love politics because what I mean is politics as the the discussion, the conversation of what it is to be uh, an organized collection of people. Uh, All politics deals with, addresses uh, the same uh, question, uh, the same question that philosophers address, the same question that even scientists address, um, and, and that's the question of humanity. Uh, what is humanity? What is the essence and the nature of humanity? Uh, what does it mean to be human? Uh, capitalist theory says that uh, in essence, human humanity, human beings are autonomous, uh, that they are created or that they are innately Uh, creative, they are innately intelligent and capable of and and even need to produce. In order for humanity to be productive, to remain viable as a society, people must produce. And so the best way to do that is to, to remove all government hindrances or as many as possible from the market. Socialism says, in essence, all humanity is necessarily communal and cannot exist outside of that community aspect, so much so that what is best for an individual 
must come from a communal mindset. Uh, And so the best thing for us to do is to have much regulation by the government, much shared collective uh, property. Democracy says that people are capable of ruling themselves and that they need to have that say and that influence. Uh, Autocratic uh, forms of government say that people are incapable of ruling themselves. And thus we need a single person, a despot or a monarch or uh, any sort of autocratic ruler to govern. People need to be governed. The reality is all of those are partially true. And all of those are partially inaccurate. that question of what it means to be human has been a driving question as long as people have been thinking. When Brad explained a part of why God gave Moses the responsibility of writing the Pentateuch, he rightly said that it was so that people, God's people, would know who this God is that they're serving. Because they're asking, okay, we're supposed to follow this God. Who is he? But you can be sure that they're also saying, okay, who is this God? But what does it mean that we are his people? What does it mean to be God's people? And in that question is, what does it mean to be human? What is humanity? And so that's what we're going to explore uh, this morning. And, and we can't explore what it means to be human without looking at God, which is why today's sermon title is The God Who is Father. And look, that may be a little, little telling, um, but that's all right. We have to look at who God is in order to know who we are. And fortunately for us, God doesn't leave us hanging. It's no coincidence, it's no surprise that the very first thing that God does in Scripture is establish who He is and then establish who we are. And so we're going to look at that. We're not going to look at the entire creation account, the first creation account, Genesis 1. We're not going to look at that again. Um, But we will look at a very particular portion of it, the second half of day six. And that's found in Genesis 1 and verse 26. We're actually going to read through 2-3. And so uh, let's look at the text. Uh, So if you would, stand with me. If you have your Bibles, turn there. I hope you do. It's good to have your Bibles. If not, uh, it's up on the screen and you can follow along with me. Starting in verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our own image, after our likeness, and let him have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So, God created man in his own image, In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. 
And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the earth, or over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruits. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done. In creation. Let's pray. God, you are good. We are so thankful that you've given us your word and that in your word you reveal who you are, who we are, and what you want. And I pray that as we study your word this morning, that we would see that. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and be seated. As we look at this text in context, as we look at the creation of humanity in light of the creation account that we receive in Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3. And if you remember, Brad said those chapter and verse uh, divisions, they're not inspired. They came much, much, much later. Uh, And sometimes they don't make sense. Uh, chapter 1 probably should have gone to 2 verse 3, uh, but there is a little bit of sense in it, and perhaps we'll see that next week. However, if we're going to look at this all in context, there are three things you ought to know about this first creation account. And they'll be up on the screen, and you can write them down and just know that we're going to come back to these three things. Uh, the first thing uh, is this, that the account of creation is theological then the goal of creation is anthropological, and the picture of creation is eschatological. Now that that's clear, let's all... Ready? Break. Um, no, we're going to unpack each of those statements for sure. Um, but go ahead and write those down. Get those in your mind. The account of creation is theological. The goal of creation is anthropological. And the picture of creation is eschatological. Let's think about that first one for just a second. Fortunately, we don't have to spend much time on it because it will, in essence, be review of what Brad has already taught us, what the Word has already taught us. The account of creation in Scripture is theological. And when we say it's theological, we mean it's telling us about the nature of God, about who God is. Theological or theology, it's the study of God. And our study of God would be incomplete without understanding him as creator. And if you recall, Brad told us, uh, I actually don't even recall, but he told us the, the number of times that that word Elohim, that word that means universal God of everything, that, that 
that collective word, that plural word, Elohim, that God chooses to identify himself as, that it's used over and over and over again. And we're supposed to get it as we read it. We're supposed to be saturated with this idea that creation didn't just happen, that this story isn't about us or about the earth. It's about God. And so we see Elohim over and over again. Because the account of creation is theological. It tells us who God is. He's the God who creates. And he's the God who speaks and things happen. In other words, he's the God who is king. He is the God who rules over all creation. He's the God who makes as he pleases, who does what he pleases, And who does things in a good and orderly fashion, that's our God. And the account of creation that we see in Genesis 1, that we'll see in Genesis 2, if you read the whole Bible, spoiler alert, it's all about the goodness and the glory, the holiness of God. If you read the Bible at any point and you come to the conclusion that it or this life is all about you, take a deep breath. Start over and do it in the understanding that it's not about you. God, specifically in this account, Jesus, as he is the author and the agent of creation, is the point of all of Scripture. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end of things. The wisest person who's ever lived, Solomon, Uh, In Ecclesiastes, he does everything a man can do. He studies, he gains great wisdom, he gets a ton of money, he parties, he lives it up. And at the end of it, he says, this is the whole thing. It's God. Love God. Keep his commandments. It's not about any of those things. All those other things are me-centric. Made that up. (laughs) But the reality of the universe is very theocentric. It's God-centric. And this account of creation is no different. And I say that because the main thrust of what we'll be talking about is this second point. The goal of creation is anthropological. What does that mean? Anthropological. It's the study of humanity. The goal of creation is about humanity. It's about God, I thought you said. It is. (laughs) It's about a God who creates humanity. If you look at the picture of creation, what we get is five and a half days of God setting the scene, of him preparing everything perfectly. And then at the very end of it, right before his work is done, right before he rests, comes the big goal, the, 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 the big moment. Even if you look at the narrative, if you look at Genesis 1, at this account, what you're going to see is that there's a pattern of how God creates. Right? And God said, let there be. Every day. Every verse of this poem. Every verse of this song, if you will. Not every single verse breakdown. But every day begins with, 
And God said, let there be. And multiple times in there, God says, let there be. That is how things are created. But humanity is different. When we get to verse 26, and we just read it, God says, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. There's difference here. God takes, there's theological pause that happens. God takes a second He confers within himself and makes this determination that he is going to create humanity after his own image. He breaks the pattern of creation. He breaks the simply let there be. And he takes time, special time, to think about the creation of humanity. If you look at all of the other creation accounts, Just the amount of words used to describe how God creates every different thing. Day one, separating uh, the light and the dark. Day two, separating the waters above from the waters below, the heavens and the seas. Day three, separating the land. Day four, filling the heavens. Day five, filling the waters and the skies. Day six, filling the land um, with land animals. There's not a lot of words, not a lot of verses going into that. Uh, But in chapter 1, a large portion of text is dedicated to the creation of humanity. And I'm not saying this is always the greatest principle for reading the Bible. um, It's to say whatever gets the largest portion of text must therefore be the most important thing. But here it's very helpful to see in this account that God spends a lot of time on humanity. Creation is for humanity. The goal of creation is anthropological. It's about human beings. And the thing that we see about human beings is that they are created in the image of God. All right, now what does this mean? To be created in the image of God. Uh, As I was growing up in the different contexts that I was in, I heard a lot of discussion, a lot of thought about what it means to be created in the image of God. And people will say things, you know, uh, God is three in one. And so we're mind, spirit, and body, three in one, image of God. Or God is creative, and we have within us the desire to create and make civilizations. The image of God. Uh, God is like this. He's loving and communal, and we're loving and communal. That's the image of God, and those are great, and and they're they're somewhat true, Um, but here is a, a, a bit of biblical interpretation advice that I will give you. Uh, And this is certainly an aside, but the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. And if you want to know what Scripture is saying, search the Scriptures. And in this very case, we're fortunate that this term, uh, after our own image, after our likeness, it This isn't the only place it's used. It won't be up on the screen. Uh, But if you were to turn to Genesis chapter 5, and and you don't have to do that, but you you, you can look at it when you get home if you don't believe me. If you look in the first three verses of Genesis chapter 5, all right, so we've had the fall, we've had uh, Cain and Abel, 
things are bad. And then we get the descendants of Adam. And Genesis chapter 5 verse 1 says, This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. All right? And so we see like, okay, Moses right here, Four chapters later is hearkening back to what we just read. And then he says this, When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. I got a chance to speak at uh, Campbell last week, and it was, or I guess two weeks ago now. Time kind of moves. And it was great. And, and I got to share the story. I've done a lot of Hazel's birth and just how amazing it is. And if you're a parent, you know the experience. Um, we had Hazel in Orlando in a hospital, and I didn't know what was really going on. Um, and uh, the doctors just kind of did everything, and I kind of stood there like a dummy. And uh, finally, Hazel was born, and, you know, the doctor said, it's a girl, and handed me Hazel, and this is the corniest thing a person can say, but it's true, like, when he gave her to me, like, in in that moment, I kind of realized, like, oh, this is what hands are for, you know, and I, like, looked at her, and and as I did, all I could see was her mom's eyes, and my lips, or my my nose, her mom's lips, my ears, Uh, she was in our image, and God creates us in his image. And look, the very first and, and deepest and truest sense of that is that our God is Father. And he has created us to be his children. If you remember last week, he's a king. And what do kings do? What's their job? They rule and they have children who will rule. And so it's very kingly and very appropriate that God then establishes his kingdom and makes for himself children. That's us. We are created in the image of God. So what are the implications of being created in the image of God? What does that mean for us? We've got them up on the screen. And again, we're just going to go point by point. The first, the first one, the first implication is that all human life is sacred. All human life bears the image of God. I know that it's a political talking point, abortion. And different people have different positions that they want to hold. But here is the reality. That all life, without exception, if it is human, bears the image of God and is therefore sacred and valuable and is to be protected. We cannot honor God. We cannot honor God and kill and destroy His image bearers. That goes beyond that, because all human life is sacred, whether in the womb or outside, born or unborn. And so we cannot simply focus on one aspect. As a Christian believing population, we must, we must value life wherever it is found. We must be as vocal 
about the sanctity of life, whether it's an unborn child or whether it's a 35-year-old man or woman in Lebanon or Syria or Iran. We must affirm life. All human life is sacred. We must love and affirm life. If it's in a womb, if it's across the world, or if it's across the street. This is why we care for the poor. This is why we feed the hungry to an extent. We'll come back to it a little bit more. Or we'll at least paint a fuller picture and hopefully you can make the connections. Um, So all human life is sacred. The second point, implication number two, we are as children obligated to lovingly obey God. You are called to obey God. In the same way that as parents we expect the obedience of our children, God expects our obedience. He's given us his image. He's given us his role, his rule to an extent. And he expects our obedience. As a church, we must cherish holiness. As people, we must love holiness. We must seek after righteousness. Because God is our Father. And Jesus says, our Father in heaven. Uh, And when he says that, he means Father, but he's also saying something else. He's our Father over all things. He's our King. And we've talked about that. God is our kingly father, and he must be obeyed. And his statutes are good. We're going to see just in a very short time, in a couple weeks, what happens when you disobey God. But as God's image bearers, you are his children, and you must obey him. The third implication being created in the image of God. We are to have benevolent dominion over creation. Uh, If you recall, uh, last week Brad showed us this chart. Uh, Let's take another look at it. Uh, He talked about how uh, we, 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 uh, the account of creation shows us a God who forms and fills. Um, And if you could just bump that next one, sorry. Um, and he showed us the breakdown of the days. And remember, we talked about the, the structure that God has given us. And we, we, we looked at how days one, two, and three were God forming. When I learned it, I heard about separating. God separates and he fills. He forms and he fills. And we saw, we saw that in days four, five, and six, he filled what he formed in days one, two, and three. And that beyond anything else, we, we need to see this, that God has order. He's intentional. He plans. And his creation fits together perfectly. It's good. In fact, it's very good when he's done. Well, uh, Michael Horton, uh, by way of Meredith Klein, by way of Von Ad, by way of, I'm sure, somebody else, um, no good theologian is original, um, has a very similar chart. Uh, and it looks a little bit like this. Uh, and this is Meredith Klein's de- designation. He doesn't say forms and filth. He says realm and ruler. And so God establishes these different realms, uh, the light and the dark. And then if you look, even when he talks in day four, he says, let us create (laughs) spheres to govern the day and the night. 
And then he creates different realms, the skies and the seas, and he, and he fills them with people who rule over, people who have free reign over these domains. Day three, fertile earth and, and, and its land animals, and that includes humanity, but humanity is given even a bigger distinction because God tells humanity to have dominion over the earth, to subdue it, to rule it, and that's over all the created earth. We are God's children, but we're also his vassal kings. We're his princes, princesses. We're his little kings, little rulers. And this makes sense, right? God is king. He has dominion, and he, he's created a dynasty, his children, and he's given us dominion. Just like Jesus was a carpenter because his dad was a carpenter. We are little rulers of the earth. Because our dad was and is. We have dominion over the earth. That is something that is not to be abused. And that's why we say benevolent dominion. We are called to care for the earth. We are called to be good stewards of the earth. Yes, scripture says that he gave us the earth so that we could eat every green plant for food. So that we could rule over the earth. Uh, The creation is given for our good, for human flourishing. It is good and it is right and it is human nature, even pre-fall, to cultivate the earth, to build and create culture, to take the raw materials that God has given and maximize them for the flourishing of humanity. That is a good thing. But when we abuse God's earth, we are no longer being benevolent caretakers and rulers. We are not having benevolent dominion. We are becoming vile dictators of the earth. And we must care for the earth. And it doesn't matter what your opinion is on any scientific or pseudo-scientific, depending on where you stand, um, ideas about what's happening to the earth. Regardless of that, God has created us to care for the earth, and we must do it. It's his. And he's given it to us as a good gift. And then if we move on to the next implication, uh, of creation, it's that we were created to be both relational and referential. To be in the image of God is to be both relational and referential. And let me explain that. We've kind of talked about the first one a lot. Uh, we were created to be relational. That is, we were created to know God. He endowed us with, uh, we have an innate relationship with Him. We're His children. That is a relationship. And a good, Parent-child relationship is one of trust and obedience and of love and of dignity, respect. We're meant to have this relationship with God. As we relate to each other, we see the image of God. As we relate to God, we can do it in a way that birds and dogs and trees and rocks just can't. Because in us is the spark of, 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 of the image of the divine and invisible God. You were created to know God and to be known by Him. Ignorance of God, hiding from God, are effects of the fall. And they ruin you and they were not what God intended. 
So if you don't know God and your life seems out of sorts, even if you look like you have it together in your heart, you feel out of sorts, it, it makes perfect sense. Because you don't know your father. You don't know the one who made you. You are not fulfilling that basic role that you were created to do, and that's to know God. And in Christ Jesus, there is a way to know him. But we're also referential. What that means is that we point to God. Our very existence points to the existence of God and the nature and the character of God. This is why implication number two is so important. Because when we sin, it's not merely an act that we're doing, right? We're not merely lying. We're saying something about who God is. God is truthful, but when we who are created in his image lie, we paint a picture of a God who is not honest or of a God who is okay with dishonesty. It's not the case. Another big one is sexuality. And look, we're going to get a chance to talk about this in two weeks when we look at the God who marries. Um, But God creates us with gender, male and female, after his own image. And there's the sense in which we can look at this and say, humanity as a unit best images God. Male and female together most clearly images God to the point that it results in creation. In other words, in other words, your sexuality paints a picture of who God is. It's an act of worship, in a sense, because it's claiming that God is like something. And so when you misuse that, look, this is why we, this is why God cares so much about it. This is why we talk about it. Sex outside of marriage paints a picture of God who doesn't value covenants. That's not our God. That's an idol. Adultery, fornication, homosexuality. Look, at the heart of them, the problem is not merely the act, it's what they communicate about God. They paint different gods than the one who creates male and female together, and as we'll see next chapter, two weeks from now, who unites them together. We are referential. We point to who God is in every action, in every way. We are either pointing to the true God of creation, to Elohim as he's revealed himself in scripture, or we are pointing to a false God. Now, if you recall back to that earlier slide, it's not going to be up on the screen, um, but we we said a few things in that slide. We said that uh, the account of creation is theological. The goal of creation is anthropological, And the picture of creation is eschatological. Um, When we say that the picture of God, or the picture of creation is eschatological, here's simply what we mean. Is that God created things as it was supposed to be. 
And the picture that we see in Genesis 1 and 2 points us to what it's going to be like. That word eschatological, it just means uh, uh, relating to the end of things, the end of history. It doesn't mean the world's going to end. It means that we're going to reach this pinnacle place by God's providence and by his grace. And that picture of what the earth is going to look like, that's eschatological. Well, we see that in Genesis 1 and in Genesis 2. But in this Genesis 1 account specifically... We see that God is king who makes his kingdom, that he has dominion over it, that he establishes a dynasty by creating humanity in his own image, and he tells them to be fruitful and multiply, and then he rests. And in resting, he invites his children to join with him in rest. This is how it's meant to be. And if you understand what's happening, if you see the beauty of this picture, you will see the glory of what is coming. You will see the glory of God himself over those things. Because we are meant to be his little image bearers who are fruitful and multiply. And as humanity is fruitful and multiplies, as we've seen, they fill the earth. And so God... His intention, his design was that his image bearers would perfectly bear his image throughout all the world, that they would be fruitful and multiply, that they would fill the earth, so that the earth would be filled with God's children who bear his image, who have relationship with him, who lovingly rule over all things, who have all good things for human flourishing, and who live in harmony with each other, with creation, and with God. This is what God intends. Note, I said intends and not intended. We know that this is broken. We know that sin has marred this. But God has sent Jesus. And through Jesus, just like he established all of this, he will finish all of this. This is our great hope, that we will live forever in God's perfected kingdom as God's perfected people. And as we do that, we will call back to him the glory that is due him. We will reflect his glory, and it won't stick with us. We won't be looking for our glory, but we will be reflecting it and saying, this is God's glory. And we'll be saying it in our words and in our songs, but we'll be saying it in our lives. In other words, we'll achieve that that first uh, question in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. We will fulfill that role, that, that, that double duty that we were given. Uh, one of the great ways I've heard it said was by a pastor named David Platt, and he said that we are to enjoy, or we are to enjoy God's grace and extend God's glory. We were created to do that. In Jesus, we are able to do it now. And for all eternity, we will participate in enjoying God's grace and extending his glory. And as we do that, the result will be worship. Like I, I need you guys to see that. that the, the goal of creation is humanity, 
But the purpose of it is worship. And so right now, we're going we're gonna to practice that. We're going to come back. To, we're going we're gonna to come together. We're going we're gonna to sing the praises of this God who has perfectly created us, who's endowed us with his image, who's called us to rule and to be his children, who has sent us Christ so that we might enjoy his grace, so that we might extend his glory, and so that we might proclaim the excellencies of his holy name. So let's worship together.